The war was three months old. Three centuries. By virtue of some gift of adaptation which seemed forever to discredit human sensibility, people were already beginning to live into the monstrous idea of it, acquire its ways, speak its language, regard it as a thinkable, endurable, arrangeable fact, to eat it by day and sleep on it, yes, and soundly, at night. The war went on. Life went on. Paris went on. She had had her great hour of resistance, when, alone, exposed and defenseless, she had held back the enemy and broken his strength. She had, afterward, her hour of triumph, the hour of the Marne, then her hour of passionate and prayerful hope, when it seemed to the watching nations that the enemy was not only held back, but thrust back, and victory finally in reach. That hour had passed in its turn, giving way to the gray reality of the trenches. A new speech was growing up in this new world. There were trenches now. There was a front. People were beginning to talk of their sons at the front. The first time John Campton heard the phrase, it sent a shudder through him. Winter was coming on, and he was haunted by the vision of the youths out there boys of George's age, thousands and thousands of them, exposed by day in reeking wet ditches and sleeping at night under the rain and snow. People were talking calmly of victory in the spring, the spring that was still six long months away. And meanwhile, what cold and wet, what blood and agony, what shattered bodies out on that hideous front, what shattered homes in all the lands it guarded. Campton could bear to think of these things now. His son was not at the front, was safe, thank God, and likely to remain so. During the first awful weeks of silence and uncertainty, when every morning brought news of a fresh disaster, when no letters came from the army and no private messages could reach it, during those weeks, while Campton, like other fathers, was without news of his son, the war had been to him simply a huge featureless mass crushing him earthward, blinding him, letting him neither think, nor move, nor breathe. But at last he had got permission to go to Chalons, whither Fortin, who chanced to have begun his career as a surgeon, had been hastily transferred. The physician called from his incessant labors in a roughly improvised operating room, to which Campton was led between rows of stretchers, laden with livid, blood-splashed men, had said kindly, but with a shade of impatience, that he had not forgotten, had done what he could, that George's health did not warrant his being discharged from the army, but that he was temporarily on a staff job at the rear, and would probably be kept there if such and such influences were brought to bear. Then, calling for hot water and fresh towels, the surgeon vanished, and Campton made his way back with lowered eyes between the stretchers. The influences in question were brought to bear, not without Anderson Brant's assistance, and now that George was fairly certain to be kept at clerical work a good many miles from the danger zone, Campton felt less like an ant under a landslide 
and was able for the first time to think of the war as he might have thought of any other war, objectively, intellectually, almost dispassionately, as of history in the making. It was not that he had any doubt as to the rights and wrongs of the case. The painfully preserved equilibrium of the neutrals made a pitiful show now that the monstrous facts of the first weeks were known. Germany's diplomatic perfidy, her savagery in the field, her premeditated and systematized terrorizing of the civilian populations. Nothing could efface what had been done in Belgium and Luxembourg. The burning of Louvain, the bombardment of Reims. These successive outrages had roused in Campton the same incredulous wrath as in the rest of mankind.